The Gospel of John is an interesting study for a variety of reasons. For one, it does not follow the typical narrative form that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We often refer to those as being synoptic Gospels, and John's is not, um, although it does provide something of a record of the events of Jesus' life. It doesn't do it with strict adherence to the typical forms of uh, dates and times and structure. In fact, John's gospel is written to affirm the deity of Christ as the Son of God and second member of the eternal trinity. And this is a priority that exceeds all others. But more than a theological manual, John's writings are intended to persuade people of the saving power of Christ but from an intensely personal perspective. Because of this, the focus often ignores these traditional details that we find in narrative stories in favor of the life-transforming principles that are associated with the experiences described. It's, I don't know, it's hard to really describe it in words that uh, help a great deal, but rather... It's a deeper look at below-the-surface experience as we see the gospel unfolding. The timelines and storylines don't always fit neatly into linear thinking, which is a problem for me because I'm a linear thinker. But the meaning that is contained in the stories about Jesus is elevated above the details that often surround the events, and we must resist the urge to validate Scripture by our own preconceived standards. That's that's a tough one. If we don't, we risk missing the message that's been intended all along. Instead of dates, times, and sequences, John guides us through the life of Christ with visual imagery of the heart of the Savior, and the lives of those that are eternally transformed in their encounters with Him. In fact, each encounter with Jesus affords us a brief glimpse into the redeeming purpose of God and the desperate need that was represented in the people for whom He was sent. The more we look deeply into the words of John, the more we see ourselves in these stories in relationship with Jesus. It is this personal identity with God's Word that still beckons people from every age to very simply come and see. The title of the message then comes from the text today in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 35, continuing through to verse 51 the end of the chapter. It's a longer portion of Scripture, but uh, I think necessary, at least from my perspective, uh, in order to keep it all together because it deals with the calling of some of the disciples. Um, And so I wanted to see it in light of that. Uh, I read a lot of different treatments of this in preparation for these messages. There are a lot of people far more intelligent than I, and I rely on their writings to a great extent to find explanation and information that helps my own inspiration. Uh, 
Um, a lot of times I'll hit on things that, that really resonate with me and, and that just seem to kind of stand out. And this passage has been approached from so many different directions that it's difficult to even imagine them all. But none of them really seem to fit with the way I was feeling compelled. And I, I'm, I told you earlier that, that I'm a linear thinker, so I, I think from point A to point B before I ever really stop to think about C. Um, and if there's something in between point A and B, it's irrelevant because we're going to be. <laughs> so, so everything else is just, you know, passage of time until we get there. But you can't think like that. And in order to, to really grasp the depth of the text and the scripture that's being given to us, there's more to this. The calling of the disciples is something we can all relate to. And so we, we look at that and we think, what would it be like if Jesus called us in that way? And what are the principles in those callings that make it kind of relevant to the way we are? Sometimes we look at it and we think, well, what is it that, that he's leading us to do? Because some of those disciples, once they encountered Jesus, immediately went and shared him with others and brought others to him. And that's kind of the pattern of evangelism that we should be focused on. And this is a great passage for teaching evangelism. But is it really about me? Are you? Is it really about Andrew or Simon or Philip or Nathaniel? Or is it really about Jesus? I think it's about Jesus. So let's look at it from that perspective, and the passage provides it for us in very clear terms. In verses 35 through 39, it says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In the story that we have, the first thing that we see is John the Baptist as he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He directs the attention of his disciples, those who had been following John and were learning from him, to Jesus, and he does so as a fulfillment of everything he'd been teaching them. John the Baptist reaffirms his purpose of announcing the coming of the Messiah, which he directs his own disciples to when he sees Jesus. Isn't this the purpose of every believer, to lead others to Christ? Isn't that why we exist? In order to bring glory to God so that others will see him? Didn't Jesus himself teach us that we are to be salt and light? 
that we are to do good deeds in obedience to God, but in doing so, not to draw attention to ourselves, but rather to give glory to him so that others see him, not us. I think we all can agree with that, and it makes sense with what we know about Scripture and about the calling of God. But too often we seek recognition for ourselves rather than for the glory of God. Look at John the Baptist, a man who has already demonstrated with perfect clarity the humility that is necessary. Jesus must increase. He is going to decrease. Jesus is one of whom such renown can be spoken that he was not even counted worthy to untie his sandals. John over and over points people to Jesus, which is the exact opposite of what we so often do. In the evangelical world, in the church world in general, we spend most of our time building churches, creating personal empires, developing the kind of programs and processes that are intended to draw people to ourselves, many times forgetting along the way that it is not about me, it is not about you, it is not about Temple Baptist Church, it is always forever about Jesus. You can tell how connected we become to our own territorialism whenever that territory is violated. We can see how quickly we get upset, point fingers, or disparage. We can see sometimes the kind of jealousy that seethes below the surface and while maybe not readily apparent, nonetheless remains fixed. We even find ourselves complaining about what God is doing in a particular way or time or looking at how we see maybe he's working in someone else's lives and wondering to ourselves, why am I not getting that? We complain about the things that don't satisfy us. How many people have sought another church with the explanation, I'm not being fed? I'm not saying that there isn't validity to all the kinds of changes and transitions that God uses to lead us from one place to the another. But I am saying that sometimes we may need to step back and take a more careful assessment of our motivation for ministry. John directs his disciples away from him to Jesus and gladly encourages them to follow the Savior above all else. This is what we are to be about, being humble and obedient in preparation of the way that enables others to come to Christ. In verses 37 through 39, two of John's disciples followed Jesus. And when Jesus asked what they were seeking, they answered with a rather unusual question of their own. Where are you staying? They weren't really all that interested in his lodging or his location. 
but rather they wanted to spend time with him and to get to know him. And they wanted to know, is this really the Savior that we have longed for? Jesus welcomed them, the Bible says, and then they stayed with him. But notice how he welcomed them. Where are you staying, Jesus? He said, come, you'll see. It brings us back to the title of this message and it reminds us repeatedly throughout that really the only way you can ever know or experience anything that is even close to what we find here is to come and see for yourself. There's no way to do this from a distance. The problem is that when we come and see for ourselves, we're making a commitment that is going to be difficult to go back on if we don't like it. That's true. It means that we are offering ourselves in a way that creates a vulnerability that makes us uncomfortable, that lowers our defenses, or that opens the door for God to do something more in us than what we had originally imagined. Maybe it isn't just about coming to see for ourselves, but it's also about coming to see, knowing that we're going to see even more. We want to keep God pretty well confined in a comfortable manner that allows us to just sort of dole it out or experience or encounter it, but on our terms, and that's not how faith works. In fact, what we find is that Jesus offered them absolutely no other information other than the invitation. Come and see for yourselves. They did. They went to see Jesus and they went with him and it says that they stayed with him. It doesn't say how long they stayed with him. It doesn't say where they stayed with him. None of those details are relevant or matter. What matters is that they, they were caught up in what they were experiencing. And while it isn't a great deal that is shared with regard to that, the results of that do make a difference and give us a lot of insight as to exactly what these disciples experienced when they were with Jesus. When he told them to come and see, they did, and they stayed with them. And one of those who came was Andrew. Andrew had a brother. His name was Simon. And it says that after he spent this time with Jesus, that he left and found Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Now John records for us in parentheses, the Christ. And you'll find it throughout the gospel. And so let me give you the explanation of why this appears. The Bible, the New Testament, is written in, in primarily, not written, the New Testament was given during a time when the most common language among the Jews was Aramaic. This was a language they picked up during the time of the exile, and then it continued on with their return. So for 400 years, this has been the common language that the people have spoken. And so a lot of this would have been very familiar. It's likely that everything, when you read the words of Jesus, they were spoken in Aramaic. 
But the Bible, when it was recorded and written, it was written in Greek. Because the larger world spoke Greek. And so most of the people would have been bilingual, but those who weren't, uh, it's kind of like it is in, in the U.S. We all speak English, and anybody who comes to the U.S. from a different country, we expect them to learn English. The only thing is, it's funny, when we go to other countries, what do we expect? We expect them to speak English. <laughs> if you've been in a Spanish-speaking country, you've already learned that saying it louder and slower in English is not going to make them understand it. But that's what we always do. So it's kind of like, so what John does is, since most of his, his readers would have been Gentiles, he puts in parenthesis a Greek version of the word that was likely Aramaic or even sometimes Hebrew. And so when he says that, uh, that he goes and, and says that he has found the Messiah, which means Christ. Christ is the Greek version of that. Same word, same meaning. And so what he's helping us to do is to understand, isn't it interesting that we've picked up both of those words? So we speak of Jesus Christ. Christ is not a, uh, is not a part of his name. It is a title that is associated with the name of Jesus. It is Jesus the Christ. And so when we see this here, what he's doing is he's, he's helping his readers to understand, again, the depth. Jesus is not just a historical figure. He's not just a man who lived and was a good teacher. He's not just someone who taught love and, and compassion and those kinds of things. The way that we hear about it in the world today. People talk about the historical Jesus. John talks about the personal Jesus, the Messiah. Andrew goes and finds Simon and he says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one that we have all looked for and longed for. The one we have prayed for. So the point of the encounter of these disciples has been to, that they were taught, they were looking for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist told him Jesus was the one of whom he had spoken. It wasn't enough to simply identify Jesus. Now they wanted to know Jesus in a personal way. He's helping us to understand that. So John the Baptist teaches us this is the Lamb of God. This is the one of whom this was spoken. Secondly, we find the Messiah. Andrew says we have found the Messiah. After this time when Jesus, uh, with Jesus, Andrew goes directly to his brother Simon and tells him we found the Messiah. The fact that he found him indicates that he was looking for him. The text doesn't adequately convey the excitement and the wonder that surely must have been associated with this exchange. But Andrew also provides us with a continuation of John the Baptist's witness. John pointed others to Jesus as the primary mission of life. But now Andrew joins the ranks of those who will give testimony to others. In this case, his own brother, 
regarding what they've experienced with Jesus. There is nothing programmed. There's nothing structured. There's nothing that has been learned or practiced. He simply tells his testimony of the time he spent with Jesus in the encounter. He shares out of the overflow of a heart and life that has been changed. The best testimony, the best witness is not the one you've learned. It's the one that changed you. It's your own experience. It's, it's really a, such a simple thing and we sometimes make it so difficult. Andrew not only told Peter about Jesus, but it says in the scripture that he brought him to Jesus. So when Jesus saw Simon, he identified him. Look at what he says. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. Does Jesus know who you really are? (laughs) He does. You may not be ready to admit it and you may not want to think that, but, but he really does. So one of the things that I am unaware of, and I go blissfully through my life without any real acknowledgement of this, is that there are more people who know about me than I realize. This wasn't something that I had really ever even thought about until recently. They have a grandparents' day at the school my grandchildren attend, which is uh, a well-calculated ploy to sell books <laughs> and toys and gifts. It's very well done. I applaud their ingenuity. But it gives the grandparents an opportunity to see the classroom, to meet the teachers, and to visit with the children and all this kind of stuff. And so, so we do this. And I'm having a conversation with a teacher of one of my grandchildren. She said, um, we discovered that you're famous. I said, really? I was unaware of that. I said, yep. Your granddaughter Googled you. And boy, you jumped to life right there. Pictures and podcasts and videos and all kinds of stuff. And I said, yeah, I said, that's, but that's all church stuff. She said, yeah, but it's got your name on it. And I never thought about that. Last week, I got an email. It came from a country in Southeast Asia. I really don't know, somewhere on the Pacific Rim. Um, from a person who heard one of the sermons on a podcast that Temple Baptist Church has online. And wrote me an email thanking me for the message. I can't even pronounce the man's name. I got a second one, and this doesn't happen every week. In fact, this hardly ever happens. But I got a second one from Australia. Now, I've already gotten one from this person. His name is Ken. And Ken wrote me not long ago, and the reason he found it was because he had done an internet search trying to locate a message or some information on a particular subject that happened to coincide with the title of a message that I'd done. He listened to it, and now he's a regular listener to our weekly services. 
what the time factor is in that uh, when you're that far away, but I'm sure it's significant. What I'm telling you is that many times we think about the, the idea that we're going through life anonymously and none of us are. There are others that are watching. You may not have quite the, the internet exposure that I do, but nonetheless, we all have some. And there's always a connection. There's always relationships. There's always experiences and extensions. The world is actually a whole lot smaller than we ever realize. And what we're reminded of is that while we may think we are anonymous or that we are hidden or that we haven't been shown for our truest self, the reality is from a spiritual perspective, Jesus knows you. He knows your name and he knows the detail. Jesus knows to call me Scott. Even though every insurance company I've ever worked with calls me Gerald. Jesus knows that I'm Scott. I'm not Junior, I'm not Jerry, I'm not any of those derivatives. I'm just Scott. As they approach, he said, you're Simon. But he said, from now on, you're going to be Cephas. Cephas in Greek means Peter, and both of them mean rock. Now, was, was Peter, going, was, was he really a rock? I mean, think about the time of Jesus' ministry when Peter followed him. He argued over who was going to be greatest, wanting to be greatest himself. He had all kinds of failed experiences. He was impulsive and impetuous in his responses to the circumstances. He missed the meaning of half of the things Jesus was trying to direct him to. And ultimately, he bragged that he would never leave him when, in fact, he denied him three times. And he was so hard-headed that restoring him to the position of leadership that he would need moving forward was something that Jesus had to repeat three times with the question, do you love me? I like Peter. I am so much like him. Not the rock part, the other part. There is so much there. And yet Jesus didn't say this is who you're going to be from this point on. Jesus saw who he was going to become before it was all said and done. He looked beyond the limitations, the failures, and the faults, and he could see Peter standing on the balcony in Jerusalem, filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the God. He could see Peter when he was arrested and told, do not speak the name Jesus again. And Peter said, whether it is good for us to be obedient to you or to God, you can decide, but we cannot but help. Proclaim Christ. He saw the man who would be changed and transformed. But he saw the brokenness too. What I'm telling you is that when we consider Jesus as our Messiah, understand that he knows us for who we really are, and yet he is still able to redeem Thirdly, in verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Seda, 
the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, <laughs> Come and see. They went to a different region and in so doing, it says very briefly that Jesus called Philip to follow him. It shows him calling him to follow me, he says. There is little mention in the passage beyond what we obviously can see. It is clear that Jesus takes the initiative in this calling. The reality is he took the initiative in all of the callings we've discussed. Even though the disciples spoke of finding Jesus, I believe it was really Jesus finding the disciples. Even though I speak of my receiving Jesus, I believe it was really Jesus changing me. But look at verses 45 and 46. He says to Nathanael, we found him, the one spoken of in the law and the prophets, the one that the Old Testament has told us about. The response of Philip is to go to Nathanael to inform him that we have found the one that you and I have studied about and longed for. In fact, we have found the one who is the object of the entire Bible itself. Maybe the witnesses are not nearly the point as much as it is the one to whom they witnessed. Philip identifies Jesus the only way he knows how. He describes him as Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he knew him to be from. Describes him as the son of Joseph because that's how he knew him. He didn't know about Bethlehem. He didn't know about uh, the indwelling presence of God in his life. He didn't know about the immaculate conception that had taken place. He didn't know about any of those things. And so he just said, he's from Nazareth. What does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, the question is, is he being condescending and critical and prejudicial toward this particular community for some reason? Or is he being skeptical because he knows what the law and prophets say and the promise that Jesus or the Messiah would come from Bethlehem? I don't know. It doesn't say. Well, it sounds like that. Yeah, I guess it does, but I could probably make it sound about a half dozen different ways and you can decide. The point is it doesn't tell us what Nathaniel was thinking when he spoke of this. So let me caution you. Don't inject your own ideas about the things you can't know. Just focus on what you can. Nathaniel is skeptical. Skeptical that the Messiah could come from Nazareth. Whether he held prejudice against the community or perhaps already knew the prophecy of Jesus coming from Bethlehem, Philip doesn't argue or debate. Notice Philip doesn't say, Nathaniel, look, you don't know all the details. You don't have you ever gotten into an argument with people? I, I bet there are very, very few people that have ever been persuaded to become Christians because of debate. Now I can't say that there aren't any. There's, there very well may be. But ultimately, at some point, you've got to let go of your position. Debate demands the defense of the position. And so if you were in a debate or if you were in an argument or if you're trying to uh, rationalize or logically lead someone to, to Jesus, 
by answering all of the questions that they may have, maybe ultimately the best thing you can do is just simply say, come and see. Come and see how he changed my life. Come and see what difference he has made in the way that I think. Philip doesn't argue with him. He just invites him, come and see. Verse 47 then, Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And it says, And Jesus saw Nathanael coming, behold him, and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. The Bible describes him here. And I apologize, I've run out of time and didn't manage it as well as I should. But let me succinctly say this about this last point because it's really significant. Jesus, when he calls Nathaniel, he says to him, you are a person without deceit. The word deceit is the same word that we get the name Jacob. Remember Jacob, patriarch? Do you remember what happened to Jacob? Once he wrestled with God, and during that time he saw in a dream what? A ladder ascending into heaven, and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And he became aware of the reality that the one to whom he was, he was grasping and holding on to at this point was God himself, but in this pre-incarnate form of the Son. And as he held on to him, refusing to let go until he blessed him, Jesus reached out and he touched his hip. Remember that? And it came out of the joint and he let go. But he did something else. He was no longer Jacob, the deceiver. He was now Israel. His name was Israel. People of God. Nathaniel saw that which he was looking for. But even in his skepticism, because it didn't fit neatly in what he knew at the time, Jesus saw past that. And he said, do you believe just because I was able to see you when you were sitting under the fig tree, perhaps reading the word, contemplating something that had been read to you or praying for the deliverance of Israel? But he saw more than that. He didn't see just where he was or what he was doing. He saw his heart and said, here is a man without deceit, one who genuinely wants to know the Messiah. And upon that statement, he said, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. It's a remarkable story. But Jesus then promises him, you've seen some pretty profound things already you're going to see even greater things than these. Things beyond this. You're going to see the barrier between the spiritual and eternal 
and the physical and the material evaporate before him. Jesus is the means by which heaven has come down and in whom we go to heaven. And how does that happen? It happens when you come and see that Jesus is the Lamb of God who died for your sins, whose blood was shed for your redemption. When you come and see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the answer to all of the questions and longings that you have held. When you come and see that he is the fulfillment of everything that has been prophesied and promised through the ages. He is the ultimate fulfillment, conclusion of everything that exists. And when you come and see, you discover he is the very son of God, the very king of the people of God. Do you know Jesus? These men encountered him in the common, everyday course of life. But they discovered there's way more here than they could have imagined before. 